I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Courtney Reagan, and today for Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the critical week ahead for your money as tech earnings get underway and the Fed makes another key decision on rates. Our investment committee is standing by to help us navigate it all. Joining us for the hour is Joe Terranova, Jenny Harrington, and Steve Weiss. Let's get a check on the markets here at noon Eastern. We are seeing the highest of the session here of the Dow Jones Industrial Average higher by about a half of a percent. Same thing for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq Composite higher by about two-tenths of a percent. The yield on the 10-year sitting just above 3.8. We are seeing all of the uh, sectors higher here for the day, led by energy here, at least uh, at the midway point of the day, but a really big week ahead for earnings. It is amazing what we have loaded here. 152 S&P 500 companies, 12 Dow components. It is going to be a lot of heavy lifting for all of our investors that are watching, and so the traders are going to help us get started here. Guys, what are we watching? Let's start, I guess, with today after the bell. We have NXP uh, that's coming up. Joe, what do you make of, of what's to come? here for this name and how we go ahead. Well, it's it's interesting to lead in to technology earnings, which is so significant today. And yes, NXPI reports after the close today. Also, Cadence Design Systems, which has Hmm. been a fantastic under the radar technology name as well. Uh, For for Cadence, you're you're probably going to see a revenue decline of somewhere around three to five percent year on year. EPS is going to grow somewhere around 25%. Over the last three months, there has been a lot of analyst revisions higher. So once again, Courtney, the bar has been raised significantly higher for these earnings, in particular for technology. Quick point on today. What's interesting about today is we almost have this bridge to get us to the technology earnings, and that comes from the revenge of the old economy. Look what's outperforming and leading the market higher today. Chevron, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, J&J. Bank of America. So it's the old economy that's kind of getting us to the other side where we learn a lot this week when we hear from Meta, when we hear from Microsoft and other technology names. Yeah, and Jenny, it is actually interesting to see the Dow here having this nice run streak as we are waiting for some of these very important tech names that have really led the way higher for for some time now, even in the face of continuing rising rates, which just continues to <laughs> astonish me when we're looking at the entire landscape together. Astonishes me too. So last week I was on Worldwide Exchange with Frank, and they're doing this world word of the day, and the word I chose was mercurial, subject <laughs> to sudden or unpredictable changes of mood or mind. And I think that's kind of the market that we're in. And and things don't always make sense. So to me, the expectations that are baked in for the, the magnificent seven to do well is so extreme. They need to be so good that it's almost kind of impossible. And so I love the way Joe's phrasing old economy. You can, you know, old economy or the other 493 stocks that are out there, but we really need those to pull through. And so far, that's what they've been doing. You know, I invest in a dividend strategy, and it's interesting to see that just in the beginning of this month, there's that kind of divergence again. Suddenly, the dividend indices are outperforming the S&P. The Dow's outperforming, values outperforming growth. And what is that? That's just saying expectations, I think, are too high. Even if they don't tank the way Netflix and Tesla did, even if they don't tank, there's where can they go from here? You know, we need the rest to do the work. So, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Weiss, you think that there is room to go, to go though, obviously. You've been making some moves in and around these tech names. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yes, but not in the tech names that are 
the Magnificent Seven. Okay. So one of the tech names I bought recently was Alibaba. Alibaba is sort of like a, a, a two-pronged story because she has no choice but to further stimulate the economy. Uh, you've got, you can have uh, major unrest with the youth unemployment there. That's what kills a lot of, a lot of uh, economies, a lot of countries, a lot of ruling classes, as we saw with the Arab Spring, right? Mostly young people. So I don't think that's an immediate concern, but an immediate concern is that the, the, the economy is stagnating. You've got this inflation. So he came out last week and he said, look, here's what we're doing. It's hands off for the tech companies now. We want them to blossom. So he's trying to draw capital in. Now, Alibaba is sort of unique because they're going to spin off their cloud business. They're going to spin off their, their uh, bricks and mortar retail business. Um, they may, you know, Ant may be spun off, may not. They announced they're going to keep their stock. So to me, this is one of the cheaper stocks out there. So whether you buy Baba or whether you buy one of the other, like Baidu or others, I think it's a good place to be for that with minimum downside. So Bob is where I bought some, uh, you know, initiated position and actually added to it. So what about in Netflix? Upgraded outperform from neutral. I did buy Netflix today. today. Right. Um, so we'll see if I caught it at the bottom enough. or not. <laughs> huh? Took you long enough. You know, it's well, it did. It did because there was a lot of. Low, so what? High. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> He's teasing you. So why? So yeah, then why? Yeah, I'm trying to anyway. Right. Why um, Netflix today? So Netflix, it just. Uh, you have to buy Netflix, and it's not a big position. Okay. Um, Netflix, if you look out next year, it gets a lot cheaper. It's not particularly cheap this year. I do believe what they've put in, uh, the initiatives they have with ad and with password sharing, ending that, are very positive for the company. But also, you're not going to see Disney, I don't believe, spend as much on content as they have. You're not seeing Amazon spend as much on content. So you're left with one really strong player. It's not, it's not the Uber Lyft story. It's not that black and white. But it's getting pretty black and white. So whenever Netflix sells off, you sort of got to buy it. So maybe it goes down lower. But at this level, I'm not going to tell you it's compellingly cheap. It's not this year. Next year, it gets a little cheaper. So I just think the growth's there. So it's pretty much trying to figure out where can I go that's already reported. Take a look at some of the other stocks that I own where they reported. And actually, numbers are pretty good, like United Health. So that stock's been a meteoric move since they reported because the expectations set so low. That's not the case with, uh, with Microsoft, with NVIDIA, even with Google at this point. While Google's cheap, it's had a nice run. It is the case now probably with Meta. So Meta traded up 10% or mm -hmm. more on threads. Now it's given all that back and expectations have come back in line with Meta. So I think there's opportunity there, but I've got a pretty decent sized position there. So I'm not ready to add just yet. Joe, you're, you're sitting in Netflix. Well, uh, all kidding aside, I like the approach because you know Netflix is a great example of a lot of the technology names the consumer discretionary names represented on the NASDAQ that are just so technically overextended. So Netflix's high was 485, I believe. Now it's pulling back four and a quarter right now. 50-day yep. moving average is still down below at 411. And again, that's a representation of where we are. The S&P 500, you could find a similar type of technical setup. So I think a lot of these stocks, you're going to have to exhibit extreme patience. There is going to be a lot of buying interest underneath the market. We call it somewhat to a certain extent a mega cap put or even a technology put given what we've seen so far year to date. But I think you have to understand 
there is a very strong technical overbought condition that's represented in a NASDAQ 100 that's up 40% so far year to date. I also think this week, be very careful believing that you're going to get the significant insight that you're looking for on what the, the revenue contribution is or isn't for generative AI. You're not gonna know that story until the real bellwether, which is NVIDIA, or even to a certain extent Broadcom reports, and that's not as we push towards Labor Day. So this week, you're not gonna get that much information. You're gonna get a little bit from Microsoft. This week's really about ad spending. What's the ad spending at Alphabet? What's the ad spending at Facebook? I don't think this week's going to give you a clear understanding of what the AI story really is. And Jenny, I want to pick up on that point. Uh, Meta's reiterated outperformed Epicore ISI, and they're giving a second quarter preview thinking that there's an acceleration out of ad winter. What do you think there? You own it? We own it. So where we're focused is actually less there, but more on cost cutting. Okay. And so we're looking at this saying, you know, it's had this huge run, right? Up 250% from its low last November, huge run. And that was threat to Joe's point. Threads gave it some bump. This whole like, you know, era of rationalization, like gave it some bump. But we think there can still be more on cost cutting. They've got $127 billion of revenue and it's only 32 billion of net income. So any little bit of cost cutting translates to margins in an enormous way. So like that's really where our focus continues to be. Now, one thing that's important, Courtney, is we've trimmed this multiple times in the last year. We trimmed it around 190, we trimmed it in the 200s. And so we're just taking some off the table saying, hey, however you cut it, however you cut it, this, you know, the stock's up a lot. And if you go back to November, and fast forward to now, this, this, the company's not 250% better. The only thing that's changed by that much is perception. And I don't really like being, this goes back to the word mercurial, right? Like, I don't really like being at other people's whims and whimsies and other people's moods. So I don't know. I don't know how meta, other than cost cutting, really drives the price higher. Yeah. Steve, you're also in meta. Are you looking for cost cutting? Or are you looking for something else? Are you looking for the ad spend? Giving a preview there. Well, uh, I am looking for more cost cutting. I mean, it's clear that Zuckerberg came out and said, this is what we're going to do. We overhire, we become more efficient. I'm also looking for them to address what they've been spending on the metaverse mm. uh, and maybe dialing that back a little bit. I'm also looking for them to come out and say, hey, don't give up on threads because there are a lot of releases to come out. I think the point that he released it uh, was very strategic in his thinking, it clearly wasn't prime time ready. I mean, that's what the market feedback is right now, right? As you've seen, 70% of users signed up, they're not using it anymore. But he did it at the moment, the biggest moment of weakness for Twitter. Or, or X, X, as we now are supposed now. to call it today. So I think it was strategic. <laughs> and he also took a lesson from ChatGDP, ChatGBT, Microsoft, not prime time ready. A few companies can use it, but they want to get out in front of others. So that's what he took advantage of. Look, for me, you know, we've got the Fed this week, and whether they say, they're not going to say we're done, obviously, whether they, met, whether they message that, hey, we're going to pause, which I think is a coin toss at this point, uh, because inflation is not under control. What we saw with, uh, with Ukraine and Russia with wheat, that's inflationary. But that's going to be overshadowed. So whether it's this is the last one or the next means the last one doesn't matter all that much. What matters most to the market is what we see from Apple, what we see from Google. We're not going to see Amazon just yet. 
But Google, Microsoft this week also, they'll tell us about enterprise spending in terms of the cloud. We've seen cloud growth really decelerate. Has it stabilized and moving up? That's the bet. Ad spending as well. Is that stabilized? That's the real tell in the economy. And I think that's what's going to overshadow the Fed completely this week. I, I wonder if, if, that's a if that's a strong representation of how the market thinks about the Federal Reserve. That we're 10 minutes into the show <laughs> and we have a Federal Reserve meeting this week and it's the first time that we actually are bringing it up. Yeah. So I, I think it's reflective of how we're thinking about this upcoming meeting and how we're thinking about policy. And I think it's also to where we're saying to ourselves, another 25 basis points and maybe another 25 basis points thereafter, the market and the economy can absorb it. Jenny, yeah, jump in and then I yeah. want to bring in Lisa. You know what though, when you say that Apple is really where it's good. Like that's going to tell us what's going on in the economy. I actually disagree. And I don't if think I look so. At the, I didn't say that. Okay, so that's what I heard. But when I think about what's the real tell for the economy this week, it's Whirlpool, it's Alpha. Sorry, it's it's uh, Chipotle reporting, Coke reporting, McDonald's reporting, um, P&G. That's what I'm looking for this week to see where we're really headed as the as the economy. And there's our old economy right there, and mm -hmm. the consumer staples. Well, let's bring in senior economics reporter Steve Leisman to kind of jump back in to discuss what's going on with the Fed and the big meeting this week. We do care about it, Steve. Thanks for joining us. I just like listening to what you guys are talking about, Courtney. I'm learning from, you know, what the market expectations are there. What I know is that the market like uh, is on board completely with that first hike or the hike coming this week um, and less so for the second hike. And that's a matter of debate. Um, <clears throat> I think, Courtney, one way to think about it is to think about real rates. And, and what that tells me is that the Fed wants a real or inflation adjusted rate that's far higher than where it is right now. I got a chart up here. Here's the Fed. Now, let me just walk you through the math here. What that is, is that's the Fed funds rate, uh, the current one, minus the uh, one year ahead in expected inflation from the New York Fed. So the real rate's 1.3, but you look at where the Fed thinks it ought to be by the end of the year, take their PCE forecast minus their expected funds rate of 5.6, and they think they ought to be pretty tight. And then look at the bottom there, the long run rate, 0.5%. That tells me that there's a lot of folks on the Fed who think that 50 basis points of tightening is what's required to get this economy into a place where inflation is near or on the way to the 2% inflation target. And so, Fed, the, Fed, <clears throat> Steve, the, the Fed's 50 basis point, you're thinking then we, got, we get 25 this week, 25 more in September? Yeah. And now, of course, there's two variables when you calculate a real rate, Courtney, as you know. One is the nominal rate. The other is the inflation rate. The Fed can get more of the real rate it thinks it needs if there's a, a, a sharper decline in inflation. It won't have to do so much. But right now, one way to think about it, and there's the math right there, just so people understand, how do you get a 1-3 real rate? You take the nominal rate, you subtract out some inflation number. Now, just so you know, that second line is a matter of debate. Right. Do you use current inflation? Do you use future expected inflation? I've been talking to Jeff Lacker from the former Richmond Fed president. He thinks that the inflation expectations number is the way to think about what the right real rate is. So that's where you come up with the one three. Now, the Fed has dialed in a decline in the inflation rate. If it gets it, if it gets more than it forecasts, it won't have to do so much. But the idea of thinking about 50 basis points, I think that ought to be a part of the investment thesis around the table there from those bright people you're talking to, mm -hmm. Courtney. Hey, Steve, it's Joe. Good to see you. Um, shouldn't we be thinking, though, about where the Fed Fund's real rate is, just in terms of is it restrictive or not, whether they're able to stretch it a little bit further? One year ago or 13 months ago, it was negative 8%. It's in restrictive territory. Isn't that kind of what matters most? 
That is exactly what matters most. And if you don't mind, Joe, I think I brought along, they may have in the back there, a long-term historical chart of the real funds rate in which I simply subtracted that. Oh, they're so good on the back there. Mm. So here's what you're looking at. That's the real rate minus the PCE inflation rate. Notice that it was up near 12% real in the Volcker years, okay? But I want you to look at that section around 1993. Notice how it was up near 3 4% during that entire period. That was a period, by the way, of strong technological advance, a time of high investment. Sometimes when there's high investment, you need a higher real funds rate. And then Joe just correctly pointed out that it has been negative or stimulative during most of the time in the post-great financial crisis period. And just now, just in the past five months, it's gotten to be positive, which doesn't mean it's restrictive. Remember that just because it's positive, if if you think of a neutral rate, a neutral real rate being 0.5 percent, it has not been restrictive for all that long. Wow. That is pretty fascinating. That's I like just that a chart. 40-year economic history, just like that. <laughs> just, just like that and just one chart. Everything you need to know. Being, I love it, Steve. The professor is back. Thank you very much Pleasure. For, for joining us. Uh, Jenny, do you think that that makes sense to you, that we should look for 50 basis points here this week, again in September, and that should be good enough? I'm not sure. Okay. So 25 this week, okay. But I think we just need to keep rolling with the punches and seeing where the inflation data goes. And that's what I'm having such a hard time with because we've seen inflation come down so quickly, right? But now this shrink from 3% inflation to 2% inflation, like I don't know how hard that's going to be. It might be a lot harder than the nine to three. And so I just kind of want to like get the 25 basis points if that's what they're going to do sit, pause, watch data come in. And I think that's what's difficult about the period that we're in, is there's still a lot of moving pieces and we don't know, we don't have great clarity still. Yeah, look, I mean, whether the Fed does 25 and another 25, clearly they'll do 25 this time because it's expected if they don't, the market takes off, they don't want to see that. Um, And they don't want to see bonds just be anti-tightening, right, Mm -hmm. which is what would happen. So that's consideration. So the question is whether they do 25 or not and what his messaging is. Uh, I think if his messaging is very hawkish, it's going to matter for like a nanosecond. (laughs) So the market will trade down because the market still sees the end of the tightening cycle. And there are very few people that believe there'll be a recession at this point. I still think the jury's out in recession. Clearly, the odds are right now there won't be, that the Fed's orchestrated a very strong, soft landing at this point. But it just doesn't matter. There's still animal spirits. There's still a new paradigm in the market where they're looking to get involved. And most stocks just haven't performed as the magnificent seven. So so I still think there's a case to be bullish. I'm not all in by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think this will be pivotal in terms of, again, the tech stocks and not as much the Fed. Home prices reached their peak in June of 2022. They declined substantially since then. Now we're seeing home prices begin to tick up once again. So for those that believe the narrative should be you're going to get rate cuts at some point in it's the next happening. six to nine yeah. months, I just don't see how that's possible unless you tell me that inflation quickly falls back to the 2% target. And if house prices are going to begin to rise, it's not going to, you're not going to see The inflation. math doesn't work like that. But just, even, just even if you fall to the 2% target, the Fed's just not going to start cutting. They're only going to cut if the economy is in a really tough space. 
you know, otherwise they lose complete credibility. You can't raise the way they've raised for the last year and a half and then say, okay, we're turning around. I think it's absolutely asinine to think the Fed's going to cut at any point in the next six to nine months. I, totally I don't agree. get that narrative. And let's yeah. remember, they have a lot of work to do in reducing the size of the balance sheet, which yeah. would be counterproductive to any attempts to actually begin to ease monetary policy. <laughs> and don't forget, they also need to offset the Inflation Reduction Act, which is just kind of counterbalancing oh, wow. the work they're doing. <laughs> so, yeah, they've got a long road ahead. Right, right, absolutely. Well, we're going to get some, some of the committee moves. Steve Weiss, you are adding to a big bank position. This surprises me a bit. Goldman Sachs. You know, again, going with the theme I expressed earlier, it was a kitchen sink quarter. Okay. Look, look at it this way. Goldman advises companies on how to report their quarters, how to communicate with shareholders. Don't you think they're taking their own advice? <laughs> so, so I think David Solomon did the right thing, struck the right tone at the meeting. They're continuing, all, like Medic, like all investment banks, frankly, continuing to rationalize the staff they brought on. So, so I bought more in the quarter, and uh, it's working well. I also had been pretty negative on the IPO cycle coming back, thinking it's second half of 24. I think that depending upon how the next quarter plays out, we can see that pulled forward. The pipeline mm. is unbelievable. That's the most profitable business these companies have. So if the secondary market picks up, the IPO market picks up, that's just going to drive these stocks much, much higher. And Goldman here higher by more than 2%, so a good move. Jenny, what, do you hear, what did you hear from the financials so far that gives you maybe some relief that the worst is behind us? Well, okay. So if we think about Wells, right, we saw a consumer that's not great but isn't falling off a cliff. Yep. Um, if we think about Schwab, which is in our portfolio, and by the way, we don't own the big banks. So when I'm okay. thinking about the financials, I'm thinking about American Express and Schwab and kind of what I heard peripherally from them, from them. But if I think about Schwab and American Express, like, things are okay, right? Schwab's seeing less of the cash sorting. They brought in huge amounts of AUM. That translates to huge profitability in the future. American Express, like, we know that the consumer is going to not be, I don't like to use the word weaken, but they will weaken, but they just mostly won't be as strong as they are now. But despite the Piper um, downgrade earlier today, like, that business is holding up well. And so I kind of look out across it, and I see remarkable stability and, and a strong foundation within the financials. They've all had, they've all had their moments of reconciliation. Then when I think about my dividend portfolio, where I have Columbia Bank shares and New York Community Bank, like those are where they should be. You know, net interest margins are getting squeezed. It's a little bit hard, but everything's as expected, and all their capital ratios are in good shape. They've been stress tested. So, so I'm just kind of saying resilience, um, comfort. You know, a consumer that's weakening but not weak. Comfort. I like that. Yeah. Resilience. Thanks. You know, I don't I, think I, it's. A, oh, sorry, Joe. Go ahead. I think it's a reaction that you have to look at. JP Morgan at a 52 week high, still trading at 10 times. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, as you rightly point out, that was basically a quarter where they prepared investors for the complete worst earnings report. It was delivered. It's almost as if they pre announced in the hmm. weeks prior. Yeah. And subsequent to that, you're seeing a very strong reaction. In each one of those instances, it's an indication that the capital markets are going to be strong as you move forward. Regional banks, I don't trust them just yet mm. because they rely on the loan growth. And I don't know if you're going to see the loan growth from the regional banks. But I think the message is clear for the money central banks and the capital markets. The worst has passed. The March lows never were able to breach below the October lows. And guess what? Now what's happening 
subsequent to earnings is you're seeing debt offerings once again for a lot of the money center banks, three, four, five billion dollars, and it's being greeted with very strong demand in the corporate debt market, that's a strong signal of confidence. Just one thing, you know what's actually almost maybe more important than what than we hear from earnings? I just said? No, 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 <laughs> than when we actually hear continued bank earnings coming out was what happened on, I think it was July 1st, when all the stress capital buffer numbers came out and you saw that laundry list of the big banks announced share buybacks, increased dividends. And it's kind of a nice spot to be in, a comforting spot again to be in right now where we've had this impromptu stress test of the banks. Because what do we all sit here and worry about all the time because it's still fresh in our head? Another banking crisis. No, right? that, that, I don't think that's... I, I think, think? I, I no, I, I think that I think that's a non-event every year the, for the big banks. Absolutely mm-hmm. complete non-event. But following non-event. SDB, it was significant. And then you no, it was not with the big banks. Not with the big banks, with the regional banks. Was. I thought um, it was ever... But I'll tell you one thing, which is, a, which is a warning sign now, nothing to worry about now. But I don't know if you've noticed, when you go into a restaurant, virtually every restaurant I go to, or when you go to get your car service, there's a 3% surcharge if you're using your credit card. So the question is, as that goes forward and more and more companies adopt that, does that hit the credit card companies? Would you rather pay that 3% for the convenience of not carrying cash? So to me, that could be an issue. It's a non-issue right now. But if it catches steam, I think it's up to watch. Well, financials are the second leading sector here of the day, up a little more than a percent. And interestingly, Key Corp Citizens Huntington actually leading the charge there. Well, straight ahead, we're following a late-breaking story on FedEx. Big news on the labor front as the threat of a major strike looms at competitor UPS. The full details are next, plus our calls of the day, including a price target cut for one underperforming Dow component. We will reveal the names and the trades next. Halftime report is back in just two minutes. Welcome back. We have a news alert on FedEx. Frank Holland is actually here right now with the details. Frank, what's going on? What's the latest? Well, Courtney, this is a breaking situation we're going to bring into you right now. Shares of FedEx, they are trading lower right now. FedEx's pilots, the union for FedEx pilots, they've rejected a tentative agreement with the logistics company. Just a month ago, they announced that they had reached that tentative agreement, but it did have to be ratified by the entire union. We're now hearing from the union, getting statements from the union that that deal has been rejected. We have a, a, a partial statement from the union we want to show you right now. Again, FedEx shares trading lower right now. As part of that statement, the union kind of explains the reasoning that its members decided to reject this by a 53% to 47% margin. Um, obviously an issue. Just actually a couple of months ago, FedEx pilots were here at the New York Stock Exchange picketing while the CEO, Ross Romanian, was here to kind of discuss the transformation plan for the entire business. This negotiation has been going on for two years right now with the FedEx pilots. And of course, at the same time, we're facing a potential strike at UPS by 340,000 Teamster workers that estimates say would create a more than $7 billion negative impact to the U.S. economy. That's according to one estimate. And that's if the strike lasts just 10 days. Obviously, that impact could be even greater if the strike lasts longer. So just by the numbers, UPS delivers about 22 million packages per day. FedEx and other companies, they would be able to absorb some of that volume. FedEx currently telling customers to secure capacity now before they run out of capacity. Also spoke to the post office. They've told me and CNBC they're ready for any surge in volume. And according to data from ShipMatrix, the post office has the capacity to absorb an additional 30 million packages per day. Obviously, 30 million more than 22 million. So a lot of different issues when it comes to labor. But when we talk about that $7 million negative impact, the brunt of it will be absorbed by UPS customers, about $4 billion, according to estimates. That includes Amazon. About 10% of UPS's overall volume comes from Amazon. Companies like Nike, Etsy, and Macy's as well.
Well, this is a big deal. Franks, thanks so much for keeping us up to date. And the FedEx news obviously breaking here as well. Now, Joe, you own UPS as part of your ETF, Joe T. So what do you make of this? What's your reaction? I'm concerned. It's a big deal. Uh, for the very first time, workers and unions have leverage once again. For UPS, this could be something similar to what they experienced in 1997. At that point, there was a strike. I think the strike lasted two weeks and basically cost the company nearly a half a billion dollars and all of their competitors benefited from it. And at the end of the day, the workers and the Teamsters won the concessions that they wanted going into that. So I think for for management at UPS, I think they'd be be very aware of history and the place that they're in right now. Beyond that, I'm not going to get involved in a contract negotiation. But you can't dismiss this. This is a big deal. This is a big deal for UPS. This is a big deal for the economy. It does seem like there's a tidal wave of of situations going on right now with with different unions across the economy, really. Jenny, what do you make of what's going on here, and how do you get through it if you're an investor? This is what I'm struggling with, particularly with the UPS. So back in February, it entered our screen with the dividend yield bumping up to almost 4%. We started doing work on it, came away with, wow, this is a great company. We want to own this at some point. I've actually been being greedy and hopeful that these strike, you know, that the strike might push the shares down below 162, at which point I say to myself, I have a huge margin of safety, a juicy dividend. So Joe, if things go completely wrong, what's the lowest UPS gets? Because one thing, Courtney, if this does go off, like we know it's temporary, right? We've been through this before. It's going to get fixed. It's not going to permanently damage the company. So I'm comfortable buying it if things go you know, as badly as, as they could. And we're at 188 right I, now. You're thinking yeah. 162 well, is an entry point. I have no point. idea. That's the okay. part where I'm struggling. I have no idea. So like this, I'm throwing it no over clue. to the expert who owns it. You don't know. No you don't know either. No clue. I don't, I don't know how low it, it possibly gets. Um, but don't dismiss the premise that this has a negative impact and what you're wishing for to buy UPS at 160. The rest of your portfolio is going to suffer so much <laughs> that you're going to wish you didn't wish for that. Well, that's, a, that's a couple usually things. the case. <laughs> First of all, I'm disappointed to hear that Joe won't be mediating the, uh, the negotiations. <laughs> I'm the wrong person for that. But, uh, but let's not forget that this FedEx and the others, that's inflationary. So that has to think, come into the Fed's thinking in some hmm. regard. I'm more interested in what the other plays are. They'll be temporary, but Frank, coming back to you, since you just took your mic off, apologies. Actually, I saw that, which is why I'm asking the question. Steve, um, that's very in character for you. You've got the LTL players, you've got the truckload players. Who benefits from a short-term basis, number one? Number two, I wonder how this impacts Amazon's cost structure and some of the other companies, like Nike, as prices go up because they're going to be passed on generally those costs. But Amazon only uses a small amount of UPS compared to their overall shipping. Compared to their overall, and obviously they can also use the post office, they have some other options. So just to answer your question, Steve, everybody loses. When a company like UPS that moves about 6% of U.S. GDP all of a sudden has a major disruption, it increases the shipping costs for everybody, it delays deliveries. Small businesses especially are going to be deeply impacted. They don't have the same ability to store inventory as a larger enterprise like a Nike and an Amazon does. Um, So small businesses, certainly the broader economy gets hurt. Do the Teamsters actually win with the strike? Well, long term, I guess, suppose when it comes to a pay story. But then doesn't that also just create an inflationary environment where maybe the customers of UPS don't have the same money to spend on shipping? And to your other question about the LTL space, right now we're seeing a stock like Saya, Old Dominion, rising on the news about disruptions at Yellow. XPO is another one of them. At Yellow, FedEx also benefits in that trucking space. Um, but overall, I think these disruptions, they hurt the economy. As you mentioned, it's inflationary. I want to credit Adam Christofuli from Vital Knowledge. We were emailing over the weekend about the long-term trend of all these labor negotiations having on margins and the cost of labor. Right. 
There's so much more to go. Obviously, this is just the beginning. We'll see what happens and how those uh, dollars add up. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Let's get over to Contessa Brewer, who has our headlines at this hour. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Courtney. Here's our CNBC News. South Korea's military says North Korea launched a ballistic missile into its eastern sea. The launch came just hours after a U.S. nuclear-powered submarine arrived at a naval base in South Korea. The reports come amid heightened tensions as South Korea and the U.S. boost military readiness on the peninsula. The Northwestern University hazing allegations are growing. Now a former volleyball player, the first woman athlete to sue the university over allegations that her coach retaliated against her for reporting mistreatment. The player claims she was physically harmed to the point of requiring medical attention during a 2021 hazing incident. And nearly half of Americans have at least one unused gift card, voucher, or store credit. A new report from Bankrate says the average amount is $187 per person or a total of $23 billion nationwide and that millennials are most likely to have the unused gift cards. Courtney, I probably have $187 in unused gift cards right in my wallet. I was going to say, I, I think you're targeting me with that. I'm a millennial yeah. and I also have a big stack and a Ziploc bag somewhere around my kitchen. Contessa, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Well, coming up, the big push from active fund managers into ETFs. We'll break down the data behind one of this year's hottest investing trends. That's coming up next on Halftime. I'm Bob Bassani with the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. Active management is a hot topic in the ETF world in 2023. More than a quarter of the ETF inflows this year are going to active management. That's far higher than usual. Why is it so hot this year? Let's talk about that with Greg Friedman. He's the head of ETF management and strategy at Fidelity Investments. Greg, Fidelity recently converted six pre-existing mutual funds into ETFs. Why is active management attracting so much interest this year? Because, Bob, it's been a, an asset class that's been missing in the ETF world. ETF started with passive and um, index-type products. We moved to uh, smart beta, factor-based, and now we're in the third chapter of ETF development, which is really the active. So if you take the chapters you know, one by one, it's passive, smart beta, now active. And even though we've had active ETFs in the industry in the fixed income space for nine or ten years, really is the first four-way into active equity um, that we're seeing in the market. So just, just to clarify, the money's coming out of actively mutual funds and into active ETFs, and you're reflecting that. It, they're not taking money out of passive ETFs and putting them into active. I, that, that's, a, I think, important difference here. Now, high fees are always a problem for active management, right? Uh, because uh, they, the active managers charge too much and they destroy a lot of their alpha. So what happens now? Is there evidence that we are seeing active managers going in, not just because they're converting from mutual funds to ETFs, but because there's a sudden spate of interest in, in active management? Well, I think there's two ways of getting into active management. One is through conversions. We had our first six, as you mentioned. Others are just launching new products. But more importantly, is we're seeing new managers, new asset managers getting into the ETF space. Historically, it was the ETF sponsors that were impassive and, and smart beta. Now we're seeing traditional active management get into active ETFs. So it's some ways it's new clients, some ways it's clients leaving mutual funds. But in a lot of ways, we've seen a fidelity that we're seeing new clients enter into fidelity active management because of the ETF. So it's not necessarily like cannibalization. That rate is relatively low. This is really new dollars coming into an asset class that has never been really developed before. 
Yeah, and I think it's probably going to get even bigger here. I want to ask you about Bitcoin ETFs. Now, the SEC has acknowledged receiving applications for Bitcoin ETF from you, uh, BlackRock, Wisdom Tree, and others. This has got everybody talking. These applications have a few new wrinkles uh, in them. They include a surveillance sharing agreement between the exchanges that would allow for the sharing of information about market trading activity. That's got everybody very excited. My question is, is this improvement on these prior applications going to be sufficient to cause the SEC to finally approve a spot Bitcoin ETF? We're not really sure. We listen and we work with the SEC as a partner. The SEC is looking out for individual shareholders, and we respect that and work with them. So this is just a further development in our work with them to try to find a way to get these products to our clients. But we really have no sense if this is going to be, make any difference at all at this point. We're coming up on a deadline for a response, though. It's 45 days. I think it was a month and a half ago. So they'd have to give some response in the, in the next few weeks, I would think. They're working through the process, and we respect their process. Well, we're going to be right on top of that, and we'll get you back for that. Now, we've got much more coming up on ETF Edge at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to talk about gold and gold ETFs with the doyen of gold experts. This is George Milling Stanley, the chief gold strategist at State Street Global Advisors. He runs the Spider Gold Shares. That's GLG, GLD. George will be joined by Todd Sonis, the ETF and technical strategist at Strategus. We will discuss how ETFs are leading the broadening out of the market. That's etfedge.cnbc.com, 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time, Halftime Report, right back with the calls of the day. Welcome back to Halftime. It's time for our calls of the day. Let's start with Disney. Price target cut to 110 from 130 at Evercore ISI. Company here expecting it modestly underperform consensus estimates on weaker linear advertising. Obviously, we know there's been some weaknesses in the parks. Jenny, you own it. <laughs> Do you agree or disagree with this call? What are you expecting here? You know, I think I could agree just because if it gets back to 110, we've got nearly 20% upside from here. There is weakness at the parks. parks. Like, it is poor beleaguered Disney. Um, last week when we were talking about this, the best I could come up with, but I actually think it's reasonably a good way to think about it is you kind of, the way you say don't bet against New York City, you know, when New York City is down and out, you don't bet against it. New York's always bouncing back. I think that's the case with Disney too. When we bought this a year and change ago, the thesis was that they'd get back to 10 bucks of revenue, uh, sorry, 10 bucks of earnings, you know, and, and that the parks would boom and that business was going to be okay. I don't know when they get back to 10 bucks. I think that part of our thesis was off, but even if they get to five, you know, six, seven dollars, that seems more achievable. It's just a much longer time frame that we're holding it for than we expected. So less of a trade, more of an investment for Disney at this point. You just don't it's know It's always a trade for Gilman. Sorry, it's always an investment for Gilman. Yeah, yeah. It's never a trade. But I do think, you know, you can look at the Bob Iger part as two ways, too. Like, one, oh, it, you know, things must be worse than expected because he's staying longer. Or, oh, how wonderful he's staying longer. What an iconic CEO who has so much control over the business. Hmm. I'm sticking with Disney and betting on it. Um, but... Yeah, it's like a check back in two years. All right, all right. Uh, Dior Horton is upgraded to outperform at Raymond James. Joe, you own this one. Uh, doing better than the XHB year to date, at least, but about on par when you're looking over one month. I mean, it's really remarkable. And after they reported earnings, given the price action on Thursday, I thought this was an example of one of those stocks I mentioned at the top of the show that needed to work off technical overbought conditions. But in fact, you've seen the opposite. You've seen the buy the dip mentality come very quickly into this home builder. This is a home builder that is in the sweet spot right now on a valuation basis. It's cheap, it trades it nine times. The sales growth is there over the last three years, averaging 24%. In the latest quarter, they had 10% revenue growth, the return on equity, the debt to equity, the financial characteristics, all very strong. And in the research note on the upgrade, they talk about the $3 billion rental business, mm. which is now 
accretive to what we're seeing uh, from rev revenues overall for this company. So it's a company that's in the sweet spot, and I, and I think they survived the pullback in home prices. Mm. On the other side of that, tremendous pent-up demand, pricing power, great company to own. Yeah, the rental housing platform, obviously, calling out uh, supported there, and I thought that was an interesting point. We don't talk about that as often with this name. Well, coming up next, climbing crude and Chevron's surprise, energy stocks leading the way today as the sector tries for five straight days of gains. We discuss what's behind those big moves when halftime returns. Chevron shares moving higher today after pre-announcing better-than-expected earnings. The company also reporting record quarterly share repurchases and dividend payments. The oil giant also waiving its mandatory retirement age for CEO Mike Worth. Joe, you own Chevron in the Joe TETF. What did you like about this announcement? There was a lot in here. <laughs> I liked Mike Worth. <laughs> okay. So what he has done in the last five years is, is remarkable. He's narrowed the gap between uh, not only the performance but the production between ExxonMobil and Chevron. He's taken the Permian and he's realized that as a significant asset, close to achieving the target of one million barrels per day production, which we will see them hit in the next couple of years. Nice capital allocation strategy, buying back $17 billion plus uh, of stock on an annual basis. So he's just done an absolute remarkable job. And when people call into question, that there's too much of a concentration in the asset. The Permian, well, what does he do? He goes out and he buys PDC Energy, which gives him exposure in Colorado. So you know what I did? I actually sold Chevron early in the year. Hmm. And the reason being was the share price, I thought, was a little too rich. So I sold it just under 180, and I repurposed that cash into Pioneer. With the thought being, I run a dividend income strategy. Chevron's dividend at that point was down to about 3.5%. Pioneer still had a high single-digit yield, maybe a little south of 10%. But to Joe's point, the Permian is where it's at. Like, globally, where do you want your energy, your oil and gas assets to be? You want them in the Permian. And with Pioneer, you get a pure play on the Permian. So I thought that was good portfolio management, taking a little money off the table, switching out valuations, increasing the dividend, and focusing. Weiss, I know you don't own any energy here. Why not? You've got WTI trending higher, sitting right around $79 a barrel. Mm -hmm. Obviously, record production in the Permian Basin. It seems like this is an area of opportunity. Why aren't you there? Yeah, first of all, I do own it through the Joe T, which I own, Okay. Uh, number one. But number two, I own Freeport. I've been buying more Freeport. To me, it's the same commodity play, except with Freeport, I don't have to worry about OPEC or OPEC Plus. I don't have to worry about as much as a, as much of a speculative-driven market. So you never know what the real price of oil is on supply-demand because speculators are in there. It's so it, it, they just control the market. With copper, I've got the tailwind. So talk about Bob, it's another way to play China, driving more liquidity into the system. It's the EV play, so that's how I play the commodities through Freeport. And Freeport's up more than 4%. Energy, though, leading the way when you're looking at the sectors. Halliburton uh, the, leading the charge in that sector. And then, of course, we've got ExxonMobil reporting later this week. The final trades are coming up next on Halftime. Join Scott Wapner tomorrow for Game Plan. It's a high-powered event hosted by CNBC and Boardroom, bringing together the most influential leaders across the sports landscape. For details, scan the QR code. It's right there on your screen. Or visit CNBCEvents.com slash Game Plan. Well, let's get the final trades. I can't believe it's already time to do that. Joe, we're going to start with you. Well, I'm actually going to take two final trades today. If I could. First final trade, we didn't get to talk about it. We talked about commodities. Weed up 8%, corn up 4%. That takes you to Mosaic. Back to energy. When I see energy prices rising towards $80, I always think about Hess, 
that has the highest correlation to rising spot prices of crude oil. Okay, Hess for you. Jenny, what do you got? Pioneer, it's still down about 4% on the year. Yes, it had a great couple years before that. But you've got a stock that's trading at about 10 times earnings, high single-digit yield, want to be in the energy space. And to Joe's point, we see, energy, we see oil prices creeping back up to $80 a hmm. barrel. Steve Weiss, take us home. Bob, uh, it's up on a little spike today. Uh, so maybe you want to wait till tomorrow. It doesn't matter. But to me, this stock can potentially double if I'm right about China putting more liquidity in the Yeah, system. that's right. You were talking about it earlier. I know a lot of the U.S. companies have been pleased with the recovery that, that we've seen there. Of course, Alibaba has a lot. Uh, it's multifaceted companies, certainly well beyond the consumer, though that is the part that we talk about a lot. As we take a look at what's going on in the market here, we are sitting right about the highs of the session here of Dow Jones Industrial Average, higher by about a half a percent. S&P 500, higher by four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ Composite, just about flat, but hanging on there to the upside and yield on the 10 years, 3.8. That does it for halftime. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.